You know, 2 Timothy is Paul's last book that he writes before he gets um, decapitated. Sorry, bummer. But, but, but before Paul dies, this is the last thing that he writes. 2 Timothy is all about Paul's spiritual heritage in Timothy, this young man Timothy that he's writing to. And it's all about Timothy's spiritual heritage from the people who have invested in him over the course of his life. So when you look at 2 Timothy, as we go through this book, what we're going to realize is that 2 Timothy for Paul, this is 2 Timothy, or this is Paul passing the torch, so to say, to his beloved disciple. He's giving this responsibility the same way that Jesus passed the responsibility on to his disciples before he ascended. Jesus essentially commissioned them. And in some ways, that's what Paul is doing in this letter with Timothy. Now for Timothy, this is, he's able to look back at this, reading this. He's able to look back at his upbringing. He's able to reflect on his time with Paul as a spiritual mentor, the foundations that Paul taught him, instructed him, modeled to him. And essentially, what Paul is saying is, you know what to do because you've spent time with me, you've been instructed with me, I've pointed you to the word time and time again, and so you need to finish well. Um, you need to finish well. And that's really what 2 Timothy is all about. 2 Timothy is about enduring to the end. It's about doing the work. It's about finishing the task, finishing the race. The race. And essentially what Paul is saying is, I want you to go and finish the same way that I did. Paul ends by saying, um, look, I finished. I finished the race. I stayed the course, you know, and now awaits for me this crown of glory. But Timothy has some excuses, Timothy has some excuses as a young man that maybe make him hesitant in pursuing this the same way that Paul did. I mean, you have to imagine, if Paul is your spiritual mentor, those are some pretty big shoes to fill as Paul passes the baton to you. Paul, the greatest missionary that the world has ever known, who pioneered all these amazing uh, movements of God, and then he's saying, hey, Timothy, here you go. Here's the baton. Now it's your job. Now, that's a simple idea. It's simple enough for Paul to say, here's the ball, run with it. But it's also really kind of a raw deal. And what I mean by that is that if you're Timothy, you know Paul well. And this is a raw deal because some of that, that, that same you know, dogged perspective that Paul had, that same perseverant perspective that Paul had. You know, this is the same Paul who said, I count my life of no value if I can just finish the work that God gave me. This, this doggedness that made Paul so remarkable in the things that he put his hand to, this same perspective got Paul stoned a bunch of times, got him beat a bunch of times, got him whipped got him flogged, it got him shipwrecked, it got him imprisoned. That same attitude that Paul had, which he's essentially trying to instill within Timothy, that same attitude got Paul in a ton of trouble. And it's because of this mindset that Paul is frankly hated by so many Jews, so many Gentiles, and so many people have wanted Paul dead over the last few decades of his life ever since he went from being someone who was killing Christians to becoming a follower of Jesus. And so now Paul is coming to Timothy and he's saying, Timothy, I want you to pick up the torch and I want you to go. And so you can imagine if you're Timothy, there's some hesitancy there. There's some hesitancy there. 
Paul is telling Timothy to embrace the same attitude so that Timothy, like Paul, can have this rich spiritual heritage that he passes on, but Timothy has some excuses. And I think as we look at Timothy, 2 Timothy, I should say, as we look at these just couple chapters over the next 18 months, no, just kidding. If we look at these next couple chapters, you know, I want you guys to realize that a lot of the things that Timothy wrestles with are the same things that we wrestle with. And so these same excuses, these same hang-ups, some of the same issues in the church at large and in the culture, these are the same things that, that Timothy was struggling with as well, and we can relate. And so Timothy, just for some back backstory, Timothy was in Ephesus. Paul had left Timothy in Ephesus, telling Timothy that he needed to put some things into order there. He needed to appoint elders. He needed to make sure that the church was functioning the way that it should function. And that's the letter of 1 Timothy. If you look at the letter of 1 Timothy, you can read all about that first instructional letter. That letter is more written to the church in Ephesus, even though it's addressed to Timothy. This one is a little bit more personal, but there's still an expectation that it's going to be read to the churches in Ephesus. So we're going to be in 2 Timothy. We're just looking at the first seven verses today, okay? 2 Timothy chapter 2, 1 to 7. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul's introducing himself. This is how they introduce themselves. And he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you a little bit about Paul's heritage. I'll actually read from Acts chapter 22, which is where Paul is speaking before a court of law, and he's kind of defending himself, giving his own personal testimony. And this is what he says. He says, I am a Jew... I'm born in Tarsus in Cilicia, and I was brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, who was a famous um, teacher, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. In other words, he says, I was raised to be a good Jewish boy who followed all of the rules and who did all the stuff that I was supposed to do. He says, as for uh, being zealous for God, I was as zealous for God as all of you are to this very day. And in terms of how zealous Paul was, he says, I even persecuted this way, or he's talking about Christians, I persecuted Christians. And so Paul is saying this, he's saying, this was my spiritual heritage. I was raised in a Jewish family from the tribe of Benjamin, and I was so serious about my faith, my parents had me sitting at the feet of Gamaliel so that I could be a wonderful Jewish teacher just like him. It's a big deal. See, this is the way that, remember, this is the way that Jesus also would develop people. He didn't have people come in and go through a syllabus. He had people live with him, spend time with him, walk with him. And that's exactly what Paul had with Gamaliel. And he says, in terms of how serious I was about my Jewish faith, I even went so far as to pursue the execution of Christians because they were blasphemers according to our law. Verse, 20, uh, verse 6, he says, As I was on my way one day and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, that was his old name, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Jump to verse 10. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you 
to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me into Damascus. And one, Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me, standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone, that's Jews and Gentiles, of what you have seen and heard. Now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized. Wash away your sins, calling on his name. That's Paul's heritage. Now, you go back to those first initial things that Paul said to describe himself. He said, I'm an apostle by the will of God, and the exact word is according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul was an apostle. Part of the reason that God redeemed Paul and saved him is because he had a job for Paul to do, and that's what that word apostle represents. An apostle is a messenger, but Paul was a unique kind of apostle because Paul was sent as the first one to non-Jewish people, to the Gentiles. And now, that task was probably the main controversy of the New Testament. The fact that Gentiles can have a relationship with the Jewish God was mind-blowing, and it caused all kinds of problems. That was the reason why Paul was in prison most of the time, was because the things that he taught disrupted the culture of the day. But Paul says this, he says, I'm an apostle by the will of God. Now, you have to admire Paul for his doggedness because here Paul is probably in Rome in a dank cell. Their cells were underground, and then they had like a little square cut in the top just to get some light in, okay? And so here's Paul in this dank cellar of of this, this prison, and he's saying, I am here by the will of God because I did what God told me to do, and because I was obedient to what God told me to do, that's why I am where I am. And so Paul has this perspective, I'm here for good reason. And what is that reason? He says, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. You see, there's going to be lots of great summaries of the gospel in the book of 2 Timothy, and this is just one of those. It's the promise of life. The gospel is the promise of life according to Jesus. Not accor- it's in Jesus. That's the only place we can get it. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Paul says, that's why I was sent. That's why I'm here. This is what I'm all about, Timothy. And then he says in verse 2, To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace. It's the grace and mercy of God through Jesus that gives us peace. Now, let me tell you a little about Timothy's relationship with Paul. The first time we are introduced to Timothy is in Acts chapter 16. I'm going to read these verses here, just the first five verses I'm going to read. It says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but... His father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. 
As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders. That's in Acts chapter 15. So the churches were strengthened in faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Okay, so here's the idea. So Paul is going through, and he's delivering these, this edict or this explanation from the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15, and he gets to this town, and everybody introduces him to this young up-and-comer named Timothy. And Timothy was raised by a Jewish mom, and he has a Greek father. And that's a way of, the way of saying that is saying essentially that Timothy's mom taught him about the faith, but his dad was a Greek. He was a non, he didn't believe in the Jewish God. And what the problem is that Paul is going to bring Timothy with him on his journeys, and they're going to interact with a lot of Jews. And Timothy's Jewish, but he's kind of not Jewish, right? Because he's got a Greek dad. And so Paul says, We're going to circumcise you so that the Jews don't give you a hard time. And so if you want to know how serious Timothy is about his faith, the dude got circumcised when he was like 20, okay? Anyway, next story. So the point is this, though. Paul loves Timothy. When he says, Timothy, my beloved child, Timothy's not his child. You see, but what Jesus says in Matthew 28, go into all the world, make disciples, that phrase of make disciples really through the rest of the New Testament as the church unfolds is viewed through the, 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 uh, the lens of a family, right? The, the nomenclature of family. It becomes brother, sister, father, mother, son, daughter. See, for Timothy and Paul, their relationship is like a father to a son, a spiritual mentor. It's not his biological child. Paul had no kids, no wife, but his, he's his child of the faith, his spiritual child in whom he invested for many, many years. But like I said, the problem is that Paul can be a hard guy to follow. Paul writes this from prison. And so if you're Timothy and you know that your mentor, the greatest influence of your spiritual life, keeps getting arrested, keeps getting beaten, keeps getting whipped, keeps getting stoned, keeps getting mocked and ridiculed, keeps getting undermined again and again and again, there's got to be some small part of you that's thinking, maybe I hitched this cart to the wrong horse, right? And maybe that's why at the end of 2 Timothy, Paul says, Timothy, please come visit me soon. Don't be ashamed of me or my chains. They have this relationship, this intimate relationship. Paul knows he's going to die soon. He doesn't know when it's going to be. You know, he says to Timothy, please come visit me before the winter. But we don't know if he got there or not. We don't know. We do know that Paul's going to die. Paul doesn't know when it is. And so he writes. He writes. He wants to give these final thoughts and encouragement to Timothy. And he also wants to say, Timothy, please come. Please come visit me. And then he continues, verse 3. He says, I thank God, whom I serve, as my ancestors did. That's his heritage. With a clear conscience. As I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. Think about it. He says that two times. He doesn't just say, I pray for you night and day. That's like an expression, you know? I pray for you all the time. He says, I pray for you constantly, night and day. He has this parallelism where he's really enforcing that. He says, I remember you. Then verse four, as I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. We don't know when those tears were. He reminds us of the book of Acts when Paul says goodbye to the Ephesian elders and they're on the shores of Turkey and they're crying, right? They're crying because Paul's on his way to Jerusalem and imprisonment. 
Most likely, they don't know what's going to happen. But here with Timothy, at some point in time, Timothy's final farewell to Paul was covered in tears. This is genuine affection for one another. He says, as I remember you, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. There's no FaceTime here. There's no um, you know, emails. There's no phone calls. They haven't seen each other. Verse 5, I am reminded. Look, he's saying this word remember. This is the third time. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. That's spiritual heritage. Grandmom, mom, and now Timothy. And now Timothy is in Ephesus doing this good work in the city, passing on, essentially, the, spiritual, the true spiritual heritage from his mom and from his grandmom. Verse 6, he says, For this reason I remind you, Fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. That's the commissioning, like when the vans has left and we laid hands on them and we prayed over them. Verse 7, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, of love, and self-control. See, Paul had a heritage of serving God just like his ancestors. It was misguided, but not anymore. Now he knows exactly who he is, why he's here, and what he's supposed to do. And he thanks God for Timothy. He remembers Timothy for, in his prayers all the time. He remembers Timothy's affection for him, um, evidenced by his tears. He remembers Timothy's sincere faith and spiritual heritage, a spiritual heritage from his mom, a spiritual heritage from his grandmom. Listen, I would encourage you in this. Never underestimate, parents, never underestimate your influence over your kids. Never underestimate, grandparents, never underestimate your power, your influence over your grandkids. We were talking about this earlier with the worship team, that there's probably never been a time in the history of the world where there's more things fighting for your influence. I mean, we literally hire people, we call them influencers, right? That's, think about that. It's, it should almost make you go, wait, what? What are they called? Like, that's their job. Their job is to influence you to buy something or to do something. That's the whole reason they exist. You have all of these voices of influence coming into your life, telling you to think this way, act this way, love this thing, buy this thing, don't buy this thing, study this, don't study that, and on and on and on and on. And we can make that list as controversial as we want to make it, right? But the bottom line is within that, there's a really still small voice in your parents, Lord willing, that they have their heads screwed on straight, that they're trying to give you some idea of wise counsel because after decades of failure and, and a couple things that worked out well, they want you to learn from them. That's the, the power of a parent. You know, um, there's a, a, a famous Christian psychologist, psychologist, his last name is Paulison, P-O-W-L-I-S-O-N, and he talks about how there's the biologists and psychologists have been debating about nature versus nurture, and they can't come to an agreement on it. And he says, but in Christianity, the bottom line is that it's neither, it's both. Because you have a creation nature that you're made in the image of God, but now because of the fall, we have a sin nature that our, our hearts are bent towards rebellion. 
But then on the nurture side, you have the nurturing of sin, that's negative influences in your life, and you have the nurturing of grace, that's positive influences in your life. And so the idea here is that all of us constantly, both by nature and by nurture, we're being pulled. And so parents, we have such an opportunity to invest in our kids, to invest in grandkids, not to spiritually subcontract that out to someone else. You hear me? That's our default often in America is we just want to spiritually subcontract things. Well, that's why I pay money. That's why I do this. That's why I do that. Don't spiritually subcontract your child's spiritual development. Invest in them. Notice there's no mention here of dad. That doesn't mean he was a bad guy. We don't know much about him. All it says is that he's Greek. And not only does it say that he's Greek, but it says that everybody knew he was Greek. I don't know what that means. Like he carried around Windex, ate falafel. I don't know, okay? But every, <laughs> everybody knew he was Greek, okay? He was a good Greek boy. Everybody knew he was Greek. This is spiritual heritage. He has a spiritual heritage from his mom, from his grandmom, and then he's got this spiritual heritage from Paul. Look, never underestimate the power of a mentor that Timothy had a father figure in Paul, a spiritual father, even if his dad was a great guy, you know? I don't know anything about his dad. Could have been a great guy, but Paul invested in Timothy spiritually as well, not just his mom investing in him, him, not just his grandmom. Timothy invested in him, or Paul invested in Timothy, rather. Paul was constantly inviting Timothy in and up. He was inviting him into what he was doing. He was inviting him up to opportunities that were way above his pay scale. And now he says to Timothy, in light of all this, in light of my love for you, in light of my prayers for you, in light of your true faith and your true spiritual heritage, this is what I want you to do, Timothy. Fan into flame the gift that God has given you based upon these things. What's that all about? Fan into flame. You know, a fire needs oxygen, heat, and fuel, right? That's what, that's what a fire needs. If a fire is going to thrive and survive, it needs oxygen, heat, and fuel. And if you eliminate one of those things, the fire stops. So when you make fire by friction, like a bow drill, you have your fire board and you have the, that piston, that stick, and it's the, you're creating the friction, which is making heat, And then you have the fuel coming from the wood. And what happens is all that little dust, it gets hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter, and you start to see a little bit of smoke. And if you stop, and you can't can't even breathe, you stop, and what happens is you can actually see all that little black dust, you see it form into an ember. And then from there, you have to put that into something that, well, that's not going to catch a two-by-four on fire. And so then you put it into like a, like a bird's nest, that kind of idea. And then what happens is you have to very softly blow into that bird's nest of tinder so that it finally catches fire. You have to fan that into a flame. And then, and only then, once it's actually on fire, can you use that to build the rest of your campfire, whatever it is you're doing. That's the way that it works. But in those early stages, when it needs to be fanned into flame, it's very fragile. And a wrong move can absolutely put it out in a moment's notice. Paul is referring here to this gift of God. 
that is given to Timothy. And, you know, what's that about? You know, the Bible says that you have spiritual gifts. And sometimes I think we overcomplicate this, you know, but if you think about it from this perspective, God made you in a unique way, unique personality, unique abilities, unique talents. And then if you are born again, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, he fills you with his Holy Spirit to apply supernatural power to the wiring that you have, right? That you have a spiritual gift it's not just a talent. It's, a, it's supernatural that God has given to you to accomplish his purposes to, for the glory of God and the good of those around you. And so he's saying to Timothy, look, you have the fuel and you have the heat. I've given, God has given this to you in the Holy Spirit and the way that he has made you. And now you need to fan this into a flame. Now he said this very, in a similar fashion, he said this in 1 Timothy when he says to Timothy, Timothy, immerse yourself in your gift so that all will see your progress. But apparently there is some timidity in Timothy that is causing him to not immerse himself in it as fully as he could, to be hesitant about fanning this into flame. And scholars will debate what Timothy's gift was because maybe that's going to help them understand, you know, is it evangelism? Is it teaching? You know, what is it? And, and truth is, people mostly are just guessing, though there's good guesses. Whatever it was, Timothy was hesitant to use it. Now listen, Paul knows Timothy. Paul knows people. And Paul knows that there are three main reasons Timothy isn't pushing forward and using his gift. What are those three reasons? He says to him, look, he didn't give you a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control or self-discipline. So if you look at the opposite of those things, you can see the three things that Paul is getting at. He's saying, look, you don't have weakness, you have power. You don't have selfishness, you have love. And you don't have laziness, you have self-discipline. And this is what I want you to think about. It's power versus weakness is I can do it or I can't do it. Love versus selfishness is I don't want to do it. And self-discipline versus laziness is I don't feel like doing it. And this is what I want you guys to hear. As a professional excuse maker and as a pastor who counsels other professional excuse makers, I want you to know that I think Paul is wonderfully summarizing why you, why I don't use our gifts to their fullest potential for the glory of God, okay? And I'm using myself as an example here. Weakness says this, I don't know what I'm good at. That's weakness. And Paul says, you weren't given a spirit of, of fear, but a spirit of power. Weakness says, I don't know what I'm good at. Can I be honest with you guys? Um, I think all the elders are here, right? I'll ask Dave Walker. Dave Walker, how many times do I pull you aside and I go, I don't even know what I'm good at, Dave? All the time. All the time. You see, the temptations that fight against me are not any different than the temptations that fight against you. Frequently, I'll be like, I don't even know what I'm doing. Right? And you guys would be like, Bill, you're an idiot. That you don't know what you're doing. But that's what the enemy does. Weakness says, I don't know what I'm gifted at or I can't do it. Selfishness says, I don't feel like it. That requires time that I don't want to give up. It requires a commitment that I don't want to make. And so instead, I'm going to take that gift and I'm going to hide it under a bushel just for myself and I'm not going to share it with others. And what does Jesus say about that? He says, you don't light a candle and then put it under a basket. You light a candle and you put it 
on a table so that it can shine light on the whole house. Like, that's the point of it. See, but this is what we do with our gifts. We say, I don't know what I'm good at. I can't do it, so we don't do it. Or we say, well, I don't feel like it. Like, I got a lot of stuff going on. I got a lot of commitments. I'm in a stage of life that's very difficult. And so we make excuses about it. And then laziness just says, look, I know I have this gift. And if I spend time, like, developing it, I'll probably get better. But it's really easy to watch Netflix. And a new show just came out, right? You know, I went through a period of time post-pandemic where I feel like I didn't want to use my gift of teaching. Too many things didn't work out. Too many people left. There wasn't enough fruit. We lost too many leaders because they moved. Other people were better at it. I had lots of excuses, but at the end of the day, what God's word is to me is fan it into flame. Immerse yourself in your gifting and let people see your progress. The Spirit has given you all that you need Don't be afraid. And I think it's interesting that he uses that term fear because that's what it comes down to, okay? Hear me. If you don't remember anything else, the main reason you don't use your your gifts to glorify God and better his people is fear. Fear of what? Fear of failure, fear of rejection, fear of people thinking you're weird, fear of losing control, fear of discomfort, fear of fill in the blank. Well, what was it for Timothy? We're going to see next week, but I think it was fear of suffering for Timothy. You might be thinking, well, I don't know my gift. And this is why spiritual heritage matters. You see, because as Americans, we think about spiritual gifts as programs. And so probably a lot of you guys, if you grew up in the church or you've been in the church for the last 10, 15, 20 years, what happens is somebody gives you like, like, a, um, uh, like a, one of those tests you get in school, like a Scantron, And they're like, well, you just fill this out, and then you know your gift. And you're like, oh, this is great. I didn't know I have the gift of prophecy, right? (laughs) Right? And, And you just kind of fill it out, and you answer this thing. Listen, we take these little tests to let us know what we're good at, and it really is kind of silly if you think about it. Do you know how you find out what you're good at? You do it. And other people, they see it in you. And you know what? If you're not good at it and you get done, nobody goes, wow. (laughs) They go, wow. Okay? That's how you figure it out. See, this is the point. We learn our gifts in the context of community as we engage in a spiritual heritage with one another. And we use our gifts in the context of community as we're building spiritual heritage And our gifts are for the community to build a spiritual heritage. And we help other people find their gifts in the context of community when they do something and we say, wow, you're really good at that. Like it's very natural to you. See, we help our gift. We help others identify their gifts in the context of community because every gift is for developing a spiritual heritage within the community. Evangelism is the only gift for outside of the church, and it's to what? Bring people into the church. And every other gift is for the edification of the body. It's for the development of God's people. Are you guys following me? So here's the deal, okay? Just a couple minutes. I'm going to make this really practical for you. 
So he says to Timothy, fan this into flame, stop making excuses. The Holy Spirit has given you everything you need, okay? And you do this in the context of relationship because that's all they knew. That's far into us. We think programs, they think relationships. We think syllabus, they think community, okay? So one, invest in someone. That's action step number one. Invest in someone. Moms and dads, obviously, please invest in your children. But don't stop with your kids. We were talking about this beforehand with the worship team, and Rick was saying something he read that around like age 13, 14, your child stops listening to you and they start to look to external advice. And that could be peers, a coach, a teacher, somebody else. Parents, by all means, invest in your children. By all means, do not stop with your children. Because the truth is this, there are some things that when your parents say it to you, you don't want to hear it. But when your coach says it to you, you're like, hey, mom, you know what coach said? And she's like, seriously? I've been saying that for 15 years, okay? And so you need both. You need people within your family and people who are in your church family, the family of God. And so, yes, invest in your children, but don't stop with your children. Never underestimate the power of a spiritual mentor, Invest in your friends, peer accountability, peer encouragement. Don't wait for programs, guys. Embrace the relationship. In other words, don't wait for us to say we're going to start a big buddy program. Start investing in people. Pull someone along. Bring somebody fishing. Bring someone up to Kensington. Bring people wherever you're going about doing it. If you're going and exactly like um, Meredith was sharing, you're going to do a service project, do it together. And that's how you identify who people are, how they're wired, and how God wants to use them. So one, invest in someone. Two, find out what your gift is in community and use your gift. That's how you fan it into flame. See, the spirit that is given you by God is greater than your fear. And I know there are so many of you who are in this room and you think you know what your gift is, but you're afraid to use it because you're afraid you're going to be misinterpreted or it's not going to be good enough or other people are better at the same thing or other people might think you're weird or maybe you're actually really good and then you're afraid you're going to be coming across as proud and arrogant or you don't know how to use it properly, whatever it might be. God has not given you a spirit of fear. Don't be afraid. He's given you a spirit of power and of love and self-discipline. And so don't let your fears or your laziness or your lack of understanding or your selfishness, don't let that stop you. Instead, fan it into a flame. Because it doesn't begin as a bonfire. It begins as an ember. And the only way you actually get better at it is by using it. That's why in, in 1 Timothy, he says to Timothy, let your progress be evident to all. He doesn't say, you have one week to make it perfect. No, he says, let your progress be evident. In Philippians chapter 4, he says, what you have seen and heard in me, put it into practice. He doesn't say, well, just do it. No, he says, put it into practice. In other words, you got to practice. It's the only way you get better. But if you don't practice it, you're not going to get better. If you're gifted at praying, pray with other people. Show them how. How? By praying with them. If you're good at evangelism, evangelize with other people. That's how they learn, by doing it alongside you. 
You're good at serving? Serve with other people. You're good at teaching? Teach other people and invite young teachers in so they can learn from you. You're good at leadership? That's great. Lead along with other people, modeling it to young leaders so that they can develop. You're good at being merciful, compassionate, discerning, whatever it might be. Use your gift in the context of community so that you can get better at it and others can grow as well because God gave these gifts to the church so that we could equip the next generation and keep this spiritual heritage going and going and going. Because as you use your gift alongside your brothers and sisters who have the same gifts, you develop it in one another, learning from one another. And as you use your gift in the church community, you'll be able to grow in it and edify other people. And so the point is this, use your gifts to invest in other people. God has given you spiritual gifts to build a spiritual heritage. Look, I'm sure there's some people that on their deathbed, they think about money. That's sad. The word heritage is actually the same etymological etymological root as inheritance, okay? Do you want to have a lasting impact for eternity? It's not going to be the size of your bank account. It's not going to be if you have a book deal or if you have a record, or if you're an influencer, it's in relationships that you forge as a spiritual heritage. It's when you use your gifts for the glory of God and the good of others, and you just pass it one more generation. And you know what? Then it's going to be their job to pass it one more generation. The Messiah already came. It's not your job to save the world. It's his but you just have to do your part. And the main enemy of you doing your part is fear, but you have not been given a spirit of fear. You've been given a spirit of power and love and self-control. And so we walk forward in confidence in that regard. Let me pray. Father God, I pray as we kind of wrap up here that we would remember that this is the foundation that we build our life upon that we're not building our life based upon uh, you know, our own awesomeness, but we're building our life on the work that you have done. You made us in your image. You equipped us with things that you want us to, to do, and you give us your Holy Spirit so that we actually have the ability to do it because this is spiritual work, and so the things that we do in our own flesh cannot accomplish that spiritual work, and so we need to build our life on you. And so, Lord, as we, as we close here, God, that's what we want to remember, that we build our lives on the gospel, and that Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the foundation. He is the beginning and the end. He is the author of life, the Alpha and Omega. And so, Lord, we want to build our lives on you for your, good, for your glory, for our good. We want to build the community, that spiritual heritage that you have in store. And so, God, I pray that even today you'd be speaking to people and letting them know what you have for them, the fears that are choking those things out, and let them bring them to the, to the cross and remember that you have not given us a spirit of fear, but the Holy Spirit is a spirit of love and of power and of self-control. In your name we pray, amen.